need him to come and breathe upon us, to move in us. Um, the word without the spirit is closed to us and dead to us, and we dead to it. So we need the Holy Spirit to come. Turn with me, please, to Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32. And I'm going to upset Jason Wood by saying that I'm going to read the whole chapter. Those of you who are watching at home, you just have to listen to the first eight verses before verse 9 comes up. So our focus this morning is on verses 9 through 20, but verse 9 is a rather abrupt uh, verse, and so we want to get the whole context because we're going to look back over the whole of Isaiah 32 this morning. So Isaiah 32, this is the word of the Lord. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable, for the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breast for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars, yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places." And it will hail 
when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you. Without you, we are fools and scoundrels and complacent people living lives of ease, even in the face of sure and coming judgment. We need you. Speak to us this morning. Take these words that you gave through the prophet Isaiah and write them on all of our hearts that we might hear your voice and we might be changed by your spirit into the likeness of your son. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Our passage today is about complacency and the Holy Spirit. What, what is complacency? Well, there's a difference between confidence and complacency. Confidence is rooted in the truth and in reality. But complacency is a, a misplaced false confidence or a false contentment. It is being at ease without any real reason to be at ease. <laughs> a few days ago, I watched a funny YouTube video about a master of so-called non-contact martial arts. I don't know if you've seen any of this, but it's kind of silly. Non-contact martial arts is supposed to be this thing where a master of non-contact martial arts can knock somebody out without ever having to touch them. Well, the video I saw was when a master of non-contact martial arts was put into a real fight against a trained kickboxer. And going into the fight, the, the kickboxer was trained, prepared, and confident, and the non-contact master was complacent, because I don't think he knew what was coming. I don't know what he was thinking, signing up for this, but his little sham was exposed when he was punched, and he was very shocked that he wasn't able to control the other guy with the power of his mind, and before too long, he was knocked out pretty easily. Another way to think of this difference, all right, before I give you this second illustration, I have a little joke just for Jeff and Mary and others. Do you know the difference between the Army and the Air Force? The Air Force is smart enough not to jump out of perfectly operational airplanes. If you jump out of an airplane with a well-packed parachute and a reserve chute, you might be confident. But if you just jump hoping that something will break your fall, well, you are complacent. And that is the situation that we find Judah and Jerusalem in. Because for years, Isaiah had been warning them of coming consequences of their idolatry and their worldliness. God had told them. God had warned them. God had called upon them to repent. God had made it clear to Isaiah at the very beginning, though, that the people would not listen to his prophetic words. That, in fact, his ministry would bring a judicial hardening to Jerusalem and Judah. And so, even in the face of the Assyrian threat, 
even as Assyria has already wiped out northern Israel, already wiped out the Philistines, uh, has, has basically encircled Judah and Jerusalem, they decide, as we saw a couple weeks ago, they're going to send to Egypt for chariots and horses. And the men of Israel, who are running the show, could largely be divided into two categories that we saw last week, the fool and the scoundrel. The fool who is just blindly going after his passions and doing whatever he wants to do, and the scoundrel who is actively taking advantage of the situation to profit off of the misery of others. Well, today, our attention is turned to the wives of those fools and scoundrels, the complacent daughters of Jerusalem. When the leadership is going astray, when the men are being foolish or they're being scoundrels, what are their wives doing? Well, here we see what their wives were doing, and that is they were complacent. They were living a life of ease and luxury, and they were just acting as if things were always going to go on the same way they were going on. And so Isaiah says to them, the Lord says to them through Isaiah, rise up, you women who are at ease, hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women, for the grape harvest fails. The fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare. Tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city, for the palaces forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower have become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. It's a hard word from the Lord. It's a very specific word, in a little more than a year. That helps us to time this where we are. So in a little more than a year, what God is saying is that the Assyrians are going to come in and every fortified city, every tower on a hill, every defensive position that Judah has scattered throughout its country is going to be wiped out. In fact, basically the entire nation was wiped out. Jerusalem alone stood as a fortified city or town, and the Assyrians were on the march. And in, whenever we get there in um, Isaiah 37, we'll see what happens when that happens. I've already alluded to it many times with the angel of the Lord coming to deliver. But, but before that deliverance, we have to understand there was, there was this year or more of campaigning warfare around Judah and this walled city and that walled town and this fortification and this outpost of military defense were all wiped out. God has warned them that this is coming. They've decided that their best hope is to get the chariots and horsemen from Egypt. The men are foolish enough to go off and do that, and the women are complacent enough to basically let that happen not to object, not to say, no, we need to be seeking the Lord. We need to be repenting. We need to be doing what God tells us to do and put away our idols. Nope, just continuing on with the idolatry. So, so, by the way, women, if you feel bad that this is like singling you out as being complacent and at ease, I'll just say the fool and the scoundrel are men, 
Okay, so you got two categories, <laughs> fool and scoundrel, those are men, and the complacent are women. Now, this is because it's a very traditional patriarchal society, all the decisions were made by men, and so they were the ones being foolish, and the, and the women were basically just going along for the ride, being complacent. I will say, in our day and age, we're very well aware that anybody, male or female, can be foolish, can be a scoundrel, or can be complacent. So guys, don't think you get off the hook because, oh, he's just talking about complacent women. I'll just sit back and relax because that would, in fact, be complacent. <laughs> so let's not do that, all right? Um, are you complacent? Am I complacent? How, how does complacency show itself in our lives today as men and women? What causes us to be presumptuous? Another way to think about complacency is the sin of presumption. You just presume things are just going to keep going along the way they've always gone along. It's going to be fine, right? Do we think that because we live in America, a model for freedom, prosperity, and military might, that we are secure from any serious threats to our security or our freedoms? Probably not so much as we used to be. But that temptation is still there. We can think, oh, you know, there's trouble all around the world, but trouble's not going to come here. We're America. Or spiritually, as parents, do we think that because we come to church on Sunday morning, at least a couple times a month, that our children are just going to follow Jesus with all their heart? When you got married... Did you presume that because you were a Christian and you married another Christian, you would live happily ever after with no serious problems or conflicts? Are you tempted to think that spiritual growth is something that will just happen naturally, almost automatically, because you're a Christian and you sometimes go to church? Or if you're a little more serious about your spiritual growth and you're actually seeking the Lord on a pretty regular basis, do you think that that itself will somehow protect you from temptation or from major trials? When I was a younger man and I skipped my quiet time in the morning and then something bad happened to me during the day, I used to connect those things and I used to think, Oh, of course, God sent me this trial or this problem because I missed my quiet time this morning and I really should have gotten up early and had my quiet time. Well, what was I thinking? Was I really wanting to get up early and spend time with the Lord because I knew that I needed the Lord or was I just trying to get like an insurance policy for the day? If I get up 15 minutes earlier and I spend some time reading the Bible and praying, God's going to give me a good day because he won't need to get my attention because I've already spent time with him. Eh, complacency. If you have a good paying job and you're reasonably competent in your profession, do you think that guarantees you financial security? Or do you think that financial security itself will protect you from catastrophe? Or maybe your complacency, your life of ease, is more of surrender to the status quo, a giving up and a giving in to the empty daily routine. One of the things that I struggle with in complacency at our house is when our kids go to bed, I go around and I pray with each of my kids, and then, well, Andrew's not usually going to bed, but I still pray with him, and then I go to bed. Um, but, so, so I make that, try to make that every night, but sometimes I'm in the middle of watching something, and 
Jeremiah and Catherine, it's time to go to bed. Okay, go to bed. I'm like, I should really go and pray for them. But, but I'm in the middle of watching this show. And for some reason, the pause button on the remote's broken. I got, I, it's just while I'm watching this, yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter if I miss one night of praying for the kids. I mean, come on. Right? Complacency. It'll be okay. It'll be fine. Right? So, whatever the cause of our complacency, it is deadly dangerous. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Pursuit of God, and I gave you the fuller quote on your insert, complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. Sometimes complacency can be as simple as, all right, Sunday morning, let's go to church. And you're not thinking like, I'm going to go meet with God. I need to hear from God. And we don't prepare our hearts. Because God loves us, he will discipline us for our complacency. He will shock us and he will shake us. C.S. Lewis famously said that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. But actually what he wrote was, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Because our complacency tends to make us hard of hearing to the word of God, he will in love shout at us. And so here in Isaiah 32, we see God warning about this specific coming hard and painful reality that is coming a little more than a year after this prophecy. The hand of God is going to bring devastation and desolation to his complacent people. But, but that alone will not be enough for them to repent. There's language in here about the women needing to strip themselves and tie sackcloth around their waist. But there is an incident in the Old Testament where we actually see the king of northern Israel, the king in Samaria, years earlier than this, and he did that very thing, but it wasn't really a repentance. It was distress, it was grief, it was anguish, but it wasn't repentance. It's in 2 Kings chapter 6. We read this, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. And the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Ugh. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him. It's going to get graphic in a minute. Saying, help my lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king asked her, what is your trouble? She answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of this woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. 
And he said, May God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. The king was in distress. He was in deep distress. He was in grief. He was in agony, but he wasn't repentant. And I think here in Isaiah 32, the women are going to be in distress. They will, in fact, put on sackcloth, but it won't be genuine repentance. It will take Hezekiah seeking the Lord with Isaiah to make intercession for the people. As I was thinking about this, I thought about the difference between distress and repentance. And I thought about every major disaster that I've experienced in my lifetime. And some of you are older than I am, and you've experienced a lot more. But just in my lifetime, the ones that came to mind was um, the uh, Space Shuttle Challenger disaster in 1986, the first Gulf War in 1990-91, 2001, the stock market crash of 2008 and Great Recession that followed after that, COVID in 2020. You know, in all these times, I've seen people emotional, scared, hurt, angry, grieving, but not repentant. Not repentant. I've seen people demand that the government do something to make this right, but not get on their faces and seek the Lord. People did not earnestly and humbly seek the Lord. They wanted revenge, or they wanted a new government program, or something, but they didn't really want the Lord. And so we need to ask, if we find ourselves complacent, and God brings trials and pain into our lives, shouting to us in love, are we responding in repentance? Well, we can't in and of ourselves. We won't in and of ourselves. What makes the difference? Comes in verse 15. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. Only the Holy Spirit can change our hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can grant us repentance. Only the Holy Spirit can move in us and replace our complacency with an ardent desire for the Lord. And listen to what happens when the Spirit is poured out from on high. The wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. When the Spirit comes, the first thing that comes is out of a dry ground, out of a desolate wilderness, out of a place that's been abandoned and barren, there comes fruitfulness. There comes overwhelming fruitfulness. The wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field of forest. Incredible, unprecedented growth comes with the outpouring of the Spirit. And we know that in history, this is exactly what happened when the Spirit was poured out, on the day of Pentecost. Jesus had ministered. Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect one, the righteous one. He had ministered on earth for three and a half years, 
And at the end of that time, he had about 120 disciples who were gathered together as the church in the upper room in Jerusalem. But when the Spirit was poured out upon the church from on high, in one day, 3,000 souls were added to the church. And before long, the church in Jerusalem had over 5,000 people. And then the church was spread by persecution. And within one generation, within 40 years of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, within one generation, within 40 years, churches had been planted all around the Eastern Mediterranean, from Egypt to Rome, Israel, Syria, Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, Greece, Crete, Italy, hundreds of churches with hundreds of thousands of believers all over the Greek-speaking Roman world within a generation. Think about that. Think about the Old Testament. Think about 2,000 years of redemptive history from the time that God appeared to Abram and said, Follow me, I'm going to bless you, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 2,000 years, what, what, what happened? Well, there were the people of God in Israel, but really only a remnant of them, because even most of them were hard-hearted idolaters. And outside of the people of Israel, it was just every once in a while, you see a couple of Gentiles who have faith here and there, right? And yet, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, with the inauguration of this new covenant age, the gospel kingdom spreads across the Roman Empire and beyond because Thomas took the gospel as far as India and the Ethiopian eunuch took the gospel back to Ethiopia. So throughout the Roman Empire and beyond within one generation and you have hundreds of thousands of spirit uh, regenerated true believers. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work. And we need to ask ourselves, are we seeing spiritual fruit from the work of the Holy Spirit among us? Are, are we seeing the Spirit work through us, the Spirit work in us to bring life so that where we would be dry and barren and cold and far from God, God is bringing life and God is bringing the fruit of the Spirit and God is bringing an ardent desire for Christ and then through us sending out his word to Forest Hill and to Hartford County and then through the missions, through the nations. Are we seeing this fruit? We are seeing some, but do we want to see more? Are we complacent? Are we content? Are we just going to say, well, this is just kind of the way things are? Or do we say, we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to work, to bring fruitfulness in our lives and through us to this community. When the Holy Spirit comes and brings this abundant fruitfulness, it, it brings other things. It brings other blessings. It brings justice and righteousness. Verse 16, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. Spirit-filled Christians care about and pursue personal righteousness, but also justice and righteousness in the lives of those around them because the throne of our king sits on a foundation of justice and righteousness. That's what the Bible tells us. His throne is established on justice and righteousness. And so we should care about justice and righteousness. Historically, it was Christians who abolished slavery twice. Once after the fall of the Roman Empire, and then again 
rising out of the evangelical movement in the early 1800s. Christians did that. It was Christians who adopted the ideas of universal human rights, of equality under the law, and of just war theory, demanding that even warfare must submit to the rules of justice and restraint. Christians brought human rights to oppressed women in India when the practice was to throw the widow onto the funeral pyre of her husband, bound, alive. Brought justice to China where the practice was to bind the feet of young girls, breaking them and bleeding them so that they could have perfect little lotus-shaped feet that no human being should have. It was a cruel torture, and it was Christians who protested against that and helped end it. It was Christians who, after ending slavery in their own society, went into Africa and stopped the slave trade that was still being carried on by Arab slave traders. By the way, did you know that's why Dr. Livingston disappeared? and why Stanley had to go find him. Remember that line, Dr. Livingston, I presume? Uh, Dr. Livingston, the missionary, he disappeared because he was reporting back on the slave trade and trying to put an end to it, and so the slavers took him captive and sort of isolated him in this village and cut off all contact to the outside world. That's why he was lost, because he was actively pursuing the end of the slave trade. Christians have been actively involved in these things from the very beginning. Unfortunately, <laughs> too often, Christians have given in to worldliness and the idolatry of selfish pride and materialism, and we have violated our own principles of justice and righteousness that we know scripture teaches us. So what do we need? We need less of our flesh and more of the Holy Spirit. Less of me, more of him. Ultimately, what we long for, of course, is for the return of the king who reigns in righteousness so that he can come and establish his perfect rule because when he comes, justice and righteousness will be perfect and without end. Out of righteousness, the Holy Spirit also brings great peace to God's people. Look at verses 17 and 18. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. Jesus gives us a peace that nothing in the world or in our own flesh could ever give us. He alone does. Jesus promised this. He promised the Holy Spirit would give this. On the last night he had with his disciples, in John 14, he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. It's John 14, 27. And then later that same night, he said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have smooth sailing and easy days. Nope. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus promised us two things there. He promised us that in the world we will have tribulation. And he promised us that he would give us his peace. Isaiah 32 makes it clear that this peace comes as the result, as the effect of righteousness. And Romans 5.1 confirms that and says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that is, made righteous before God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the gift of righteousness in our justification brings peace with God. Listen to me. If you are here and you don't really know Jesus, 
If he's not your king, if you're just here because you had nothing better to do on a Sunday morning, or maybe your parents dragged you and they make you come, or maybe you've just been pretending all this time and you don't really know the Lord, you don't really have a right relationship with him, you haven't been justified by grace by receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you may look for peace everywhere in the world and you will not find it. Jesus alone has the peace that surpasses understanding. Jesus alone will give you peace, peace with God, and then peace within your own heart. And if you do belong to Jesus, and you are not experiencing that peace, write down Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Read that, meditate on it, practice it. I'm going to read the last couple of verses to you. Philippians 4, 8 and 9. Remember, it's righteousness that brings peace. The effect of righteousness is peace. Philippians 4, 8 and 9 says this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So if you're not experiencing the peace of God and the presence of the God of peace, one is to check your thinking. What are you thinking about? If you find yourself thinking about things that are impure, or unrighteous, or dishonorable, or ugly. Stop, pray, and say, Lord, replace that thinking with whatever is honorable, and just, and pure, and lovely, and commendable. Turn on some worship music. Open your Bible and read a psalm. Replace that negative ugly thinking with thinking about the things of God, and then do what you know God has called you to do, what you've learned and received and heard and seen. Practice these things, and then the peace, the God of peace, will be with you. So God brings us fruitfulness. He brings us righteousness and justice. He brings us peace, but he also brings judgment. Verse 19 might seem like a weird interruption to this beautiful section on the effects of the Holy Spirit, and it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. It's kind of an interesting reference. What is he talking about? Well, he may be foreseeing the falling of the enemies of God or even of Jerusalem itself. It's, it's a judgment, but ultimately all judgment is but a preview of the judgment that is coming and that is brought about as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of people. The Bible tells us that when God the Holy Spirit has spread throughout the world and worked in the hearts of all those who are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ, when he has brought in all the fruit that's going to be brought in from the gospel in every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, then Jesus will come again. Then the day of judgment will come and everything will be laid low. The cities and forests will be laid low. Everything will be judged and then will be brought in to the new heavens and the new earth, which I think we get a picture of in the last verse here. So in the meantime, 
he brings judgment, temporal judgment, to both nations and to the church as part of his process of advancing the gospel in the world. But in the end, in the end, we get to verse 20. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. This is a picture that I believe is a hint, it's a little hint, of the new heavens and the new earth, an idealized world where agriculture is abundantly fruitful and where livestock can roam free without any fear of harm. It's a very interesting contrast because um, if you look closely, verse 14, the judgment that's coming will make the hill and the watchtower a joy of wild donkeys and a pasture of flocks. That's judgment. In this world, in this fallen world, if you don't have fences, if you don't have fenced-in pasture, if you don't have uh, watching over animals and they just get loose and roam all over the place, that's judgment. But in verse 20, happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. In the world that's coming, animals can roam wherever they want to go, and it's, it's, it's part of the blessing. That's how we know the curse has been removed. So it's, it's, a, little, it's a hint, it's a, you know, a little obscure, but if you see that contrast, how can it be happy for animals to be running wild? Because, because the world is no longer under the curse. Jesus has come again. The picture in verse 20 is a picture of true happiness. True happiness. In America, we believe that everybody has the God-given, inalienable right to pursue happiness. But you know what? In this life, it's always a pursuit. We never quite get there, right? Whatever joys we experience are always fleeting. They come, they go. Whatever happiness we get is always partial. I love the end of Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 11 ends, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Only in the presence of God is fullness of joy. Not partial joy, but fullness of joy. At the right hand of God, which is where Jesus is enthroned, is pleasure forevermore. Not temporary pleasure, not fleeting pleasure. That's what's coming. That's coming when Jesus is coming, when we are face to face with him. The Lord is the fountainhead of all joy and pleasure. And when we are in his presence forever, we will be there truly, deeply, eternally, and contentedly happy. Listen, kids. Kids means anybody to whom this applies. Kids, you might think that God is like out to take away all your fun, right? Uh, Joel was sharing with us some lines from uh, the comedian Nate Bargatze. Uh, last night. Nate, Nate Bargatze is probably my, my favorite comedian. Um, hilarious guy. But he, he talks about how he was raised by Christian parents in the 80s and 90s who had converted to Christ, right? And he said, Christian parents who were converts to Christ in the 80s and 90s, that's as Christian as Christian can be. And then he says, Jesus had more fun than I did growing up. <laughs> <laughs> and so you might think, oh, all you hear about Christianity is you're not allowed to watch this, you're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to go there, you're not allowed, and it might seem like God's out to sort of take away all your joy. Hopefully, your parents have learned <laughs> and can tell you that even in this life, when God takes away something that's promising happiness, it's because it's a false promise and he wants to replace it with something that's going to bring us more lasting joy. But the day is coming 
when all those restrictions will be removed because we'll no longer have sinful hearts or sinful desires and we will be set free to enjoy, to fully enjoy whatever we want because whatever we want will be glorious and glorifying to God and good for us. And that day is coming. All right, very quickly, step back and take a look at the whole of Isaiah 32. This is our conclusion. Put this two halves of this chapter back together. Notice that it begins with, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. So the beginning of it is talking about the reign of the righteous king, and we know that's King Jesus, right? And then it's talking about the, the, the effect of his reign in the lives of those who reign under him, the princes who rule, who will be like a hiding place from the wind and who will open the eyes of those who are blind and, and, and the ears of those who hear will give attention and the heart will understand and know and the tongue will begin to speak distinctly, right? And then you get in the middle part, you get these three categories of people who resist the rule of God, the fool, the scoundrel, the complacent. And then, and then we come to until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then there's fruitfulness, justice, righteousness. So if you look at this, it's like verses 1 to 5, right, are about the reign of the Son of God and the good effects that his reign brings. And then verses 15 to 20 are about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the good effects that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit bring. And then in between, verses uh, 6 through 14 are the resistance to that and the negative. And so we're supposed to see that the reign of the king and the pouring out of the Spirit are tied together. They're the two pieces of bread on the sandwich, whatever. They're the two, they're the opening and close of the passage. That's the good. And that's why it was after Jesus ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty as King of kings and Lord of lords after he was enthroned that the Holy Spirit was poured out. And those two things are connected. As Jesus is honored, the Holy Spirit moves and works. And as the Holy Spirit moves and works, people come to Jesus. So when we say we need more of the Holy Spirit, we need more of Jesus, we're saying the same thing two different ways, <laughs> because it's the Holy Spirit who glorifies Jesus and brings us more of Jesus. That's what we need. We need, we need more of the reign of the King of righteousness and his blessings in our lives. We need more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's the same thing. We can't be complacent about it, is the lesson God has for us today. If we know that, if we know that we need more of Jesus in our lives, that we need more of the Holy Spirit, we need more of the reign of righteousness, we need more of the fruit of the Spirit, we can't be complacent about it. We're, we're called to be desperate. We're called to be hungry. We're called to be thirsty. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. He didn't say, blessed are those who are sort of meh about righteousness, because they'll be sort of meh, right? Like, no. That's not it. You hunger and you thirst because you desperately need what you do not have, and God will satisfy. We need to earnestly seek the Lord and plead for the Holy Spirit to bring us more of Jesus and more of his reign in our hearts, in our homes, in our church, and then to bring the blessing of his kingdom through us to our neighbors and the nations. That is something I believe the Lord is calling us to.
And we need to respond to that call. Let's not be complacent. Let's not be passive and half-hearted. Let's respond to his call with urgency, the urgency that his kingdom demands. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for sending us your spirit. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts to wean us off of the distractions and the busyness and the entanglements that can make us complacent and at ease and lukewarm. Give us a hunger, give us a thirst, give us a passionate desire for Jesus, for more of King Jesus, for more of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.